So I've preached 34 sermons at our church since starting here last year. And I'm going to do something today I've never done before in a sermon. We're going to talk about some stuff as we begin our time together. So the first one I have is we've got an egg that's wrapped in here somewhere. We have an egg that we've all seen before. It's got three parts, a yolk, a white, and a shell, but it's still one egg. Then we've got water. This sounded a lot easier in my head than it is to actually do it. I mean, it seemed a lot easier in my head when I had the idea. So we've got water that can be a liquid, it can be a gas, and it can be a solid, depending on the state that it's in. Then we've got two other items, a pretzel. It's one long finger of dough that gets wrapped into three different sections, but it's one piece. Then we've got toothpaste. It can freshen your breath, fight cavities, and strengthen your teeth all in one tube. And I have one other item that I'll wait till the end of the message to share with you. And those are all items used to sometimes for us to describe the Trinity, how we as Christians believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons that make up one essence. And most people will admit that those items fall a little short in describing the Trinity. Every metaphor that you use for theology kind of starts to break down at some point in time, but they are sometimes useful to describe our Trinitarian faith as Christians. And I share those items with you because our belief in the Trinity as Christians is what distinguishes us from other religions around the world. Any good book on theology will start with two doctrines at the very beginning, the doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of the Trinity. And the reason is because if theology in one of those two areas starts to get off track, all the other things about salvation and angels and end times will also get off track as well. And our belief in the Trinity is what distinguishes us, not just from world religions, but also from cults in our community that claim to be Christian, that use a lot of the same terms that we use, but redefine those terms to mean something different. And because we believe things different than other people, than other religions, we have to face questions like, is it okay for us to be friends with people of other faiths? Is it okay that we say we are different than you when we talk to people in other faiths? What do we say when someone approaches us and they say, well, I believe the same things as you, even though you know they don't? If those cults or religions want to partner with us in ministry, what does that look like? Do we partner with them or do we maintain our independence? How can we keep from compromising our heritage, our beliefs, and our message as evangelical Christians in a society in a community that's becoming less and less Christian. So my goal for us today is to see in this passage an accurate understanding of the Trinity for our faith and see how it distinguishes us from other world religions and other cults that claim to be Christian and use some of our same language but redefine those terms. 
So we'll look at the equality of the Son for the first four verses, the eternal life that the Son offers in verse 24, and then we're going to look at an evaluation and judgment that the Son gives that he describes at the end of the passage. So first we read about Jesus' equality with the Father in these first four verses. And Jesus has just finished, uh, if you've been following along with us in chapter 5, the first half of chapter 5, Jesus heals this man at the, in the city of Jerusalem. He's sitting by this pool. He heals him. And in the process of healing him, Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father. And the text says that the Jews began persecuting Jesus because of that. And so here, this is Jesus' response to those Jews and what he says in return to them. Talking about his equality. And you'll see a, a couple words there at the beginning of verse 19. In my translation, it says, truly, truly. In the NIV, it says, very truly. Or in the New Living Translation, it says, I tell you the truth. And that's a translation of two Greek words. You're going to be uh, encouraged when I share these ones with you because you know what they are. Amen is the word, Greek word. Amen, amen. You didn't know, but you know Greek, okay? And it means, so let it be, or I agree with you. And what this person or what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, it is true. Pay attention to this. What I'm about to say is very important because he says, amen, amen, twice. It's kind of like an exclamation point, except something put at the beginning of a sentence to get us to pay attention. And that's how I've outlined these three sections today that we're going to look at. Each time Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen, it's kind of a section of thought that he wants to share with them that's very important. And what we read here about Jesus' equality with the Father is that Jesus does what the Father does in these first two verses. Verse 19 and 20 read, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. So we read here that the Son can't do anything without the Father. The Father and Son are unique and distinct persons, but they are equal and unified. The Son does what the Father does. If we borrow a metaphor, maybe from sports, we could say, these guys are using the same playbook. They're on the same page, doing the same things, working together. Then in verse 20, it kind of takes verse 19 a step farther, and it says that Jesus is loved and led by the Father. It says the Father loves the Son, and it's used in a tense that describes this as something is continual, that the Father always loves the Son. And when it says the Father will show him greater works than these, it's a hint that the best is yet to come in this gospel. Yes, it might have been cool that Jesus turned some water into wine. It was amazing that he healed a boy that had a fever and was about to die. It was unbelievable that he would heal a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. But the best things Jesus is going to do haven't even been done yet. And the text says that we will marvel at them when we see them. So Jesus does what the Father does, and Jesus gives life to those he wishes. And in 21, 22, and 23, we th see three claims of Jesus that he is equal with the Father. 
His first claim is that he's equal with the Father in works. In verse 21 it says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Since Jesus has equality with the Father and authority to do what the Father can do, this is what Jesus chooses to do, to give life to others. Just as the Father has the ability to give life, he has delegated that authority to Jesus to give life. Then in verse 22, we see that second claim of Jesus, that Jesus is equal with the Father in judgment. That's the main topic of the last section of this passage that we'll look at. So we'll look at Jesus' judgment later. Then the third claim of Jesus is that Jesus is equal with the Father in honor. Verse 23. I'm sorry, I forgot to read verse 22. So Jesus' second claim, Jesus is equal to the Father in judgment, verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Then claim three is that Jesus is equal in honor with the Father, verse 23. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And notice the purpose clause at the beginning of verse 23. That so that phrase gives us the purpose here. God delegates judgment to Jesus so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So while the Father and Son are distinct persons, they are equal and they are one. Growing up with uh, both of my parents... There were times maybe dad was at work and mom was at home and I'd do something wrong or make mom mad or be disrespectful. And there was a phrase I heard that you probably heard in your house too. Wait till your father gets home. Because I got taller than my mom pretty quick, but my dad could still let me have it, if you know what I mean. So there was this idea in our household, you mess with mom, you mess with dad. You disrespect mom, it's like you're disrespecting dad. They're one and the same. They might be distinct persons in different places, but they are one team together. Leon Morris, in his commentary on this passage, writes about this verse. He says, the whole stress of this passage is on the unity of the Father and the Son. While while what is done to one is done also to the other, the inherent dignity of the Son and his intimate relationship to the Father make the dishonoring of him a very serious matter indeed. And that's why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. If you don't believe the right things about the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, you're not believing the right things about the one God we worship. Let me put it this way. There are people in the world that believe Jesus was a historical person, maybe that he lived, but they don't believe that he was someone that died for their sins, and they don't place their faith in him. So while they might have a belief about Jesus, that he was real, that belief doesn't save them because they don't believe he was God that died for their sins. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, even the Satans believe in Jesus and God, but they're not saved because they don't express faith in him and believe in what he did. Then we see Jesus' offer of eternal life in verse 24. He talks about eternity with him in heaven. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. 
And this verse is the pivot of the passage. Everything kind of evolves around this one verse. The Jews are persecuting Jesus because he'd been claiming to be equal with God, but because he claims to be equal with God, that's why he's able to offer eternal life to everyone. And he says there's two things here. Hearing the word, right? He says, he who hears my word. That refers to the whole message of Jesus while he was on earth, that he is the source of life, that he offers eternal life to anyone who places faith in him. And that's the truth of the gospel. It's not through the good deeds of people. It's not through all the roads that lead to God. It is through the word, which is Jesus Christ. Just as John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not politically correct, but very, very clear about how you get eternal life. By hearing the word and by believing the message. So the person who hears the word believes him who sent me, the text says meaning the person places their faith in God and places their trust in God for their salvation. For someone to do that, they have to acknowledge that, you know, she's a sinner, he's a sinner, and can't save himself. He has to say, I'm separated from God and I need help, that I'm not going to get to heaven based on my own merit. It's through the mercy of Jesus Christ that someone can get to heaven. So he believes in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and through hearing the word and believing in him who sent Jesus, the person receives life. It's pretty simple. Hearing the word and believing the message gives eternal life. It doesn't say anything about getting baptized or how to get baptized or repenting of all your sins or calling Jesus Lord or anything like that. Those are all good things, but that's not the essential offer that Jesus has here. Simply hear his offer of salvation, believe his message, and you will get saved. Then starting in verse 25 is the evaluation that Jesus describes. This judgment that is going to come for everyone. He talks about a resurrection to life forever in heaven for some, and a resurrection to judgment forever in hell for others. And he starts out talking about how life starts now for those that are going to live for heaven, live forever in heaven. In verse 25, he says that life starts now. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So while people are dead in their sins now, life is offered to them right now. And here we see that gift and that offer of salvation that is offered through Jesus's life. When it says, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So while the judgment will happen in the future, there'll be a future judgment and a future resurrection, there also is a current resurrection spiritually. There's a spiritual resurrection to life we get right now, while there'll be a later literal resurrection in the future when Jesus returns. And that resurrection starts with Jesus as the source. It says in verse 26, For just as the Father has in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. 
Jesus is God in the flesh right in front of them. There's no excuse. He's a tangible representation of eternal life right in front of them. It's God's message in living form. And he describes that future resurrection at the beginning of verse 29. Verse 28 talks about how there will be an hour that's coming where people will hear the sound of God and they will be resurrected. Then in verse 29, it says, And they will come forth, those who did good deeds, to a resurrection of life. So spiritually, those have been resurrected already, but this is describing that future, literal, physical resurrection. And here the reference to good deeds is not what earns us salvation, but it is evidence of the eternal life we already have. Good deeds are a result of our authentic faith of following Jesus Christ. If there's a man that's regularly stealing money from his family to buy drugs, he cheats on his wife regularly, he goes to the bars whenever he can, he does whatever he can to get by at work and shows up late and leaves early but still says he was there the whole time and he does all kinds of evil wicked things but he comes to church and gets saved and then Monday morning he goes back to that same lifestyle. We have to question if those outward things didn't change, did anything inward change in his life? Did he really get saved if his life did not change as a result of his faith. So those good deeds are just simply evidence of a faith in Christ. They don't earn us that salvation. And just as spiritual life starts now, and that physical life with the future resurrection for believers, there also will be a resurrection for non-Christians that leads them to the place they are going to go to forever. You see, resurrection isn't just for the righteous people going to heaven. Non-believers will be resurrected as well. Verse 28 introduces that. It says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Verse 29. uh, That's verse 28. There will be a resurrection and judgment forever in hell for people. If I skip back up to verse 27, it talks about this. It says, For he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And then to complete verse 29 that I read half of first. It says, those who committed the evil deeds will be resurrected to judgment. Now sometimes in the Bible, the same words get used in different ways. And Judgment is something that's going to happen to five groups of people in the Bible. Believers will be judged. Gentiles will be judged, the nations. Israel specifically will be judged. Angels are going to have a judgment. And non-believers are going to have a judgment. And for believers, our judgment will occur at what's called the behemoth seat of Christ. When we are raptured and go to heaven to be with Jesus and God forever, we will be judged there. But our judgment really has already occurred because we placed our faith in Jesus. Our ticket's been stamped. We have our entrance to heaven. We just get a judgment of our works that determine our rewards and things like that that we enjoy in heaven. That's the judgment we go through. But for non-believers, they will have a judgment that occurs later. 
After the rapture of the church, after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth, there will be what's called the great white throne judgment, the very last thing that happens before everyone enters in heaven. And there, all of the unrighteous, all of the unbelievers have to go before God, and they are judged for their lack of faith in God. And that happens very last, and I think that's a sign of God's love and mercy. He gives everything possible, gives them every chance to express faith in God. And at the very end of time, right before our eternal life in heaven, he gives their judgment where they go to hell forever at the great white throne judgment. So I want to share a couple of reflections on this Trinitarian doctrine and two modern cults. One commentary on this passage that I read this week said, Jesus claimed equality with God, which left no compromise, no middle ground to stand upon. We must choose to believe or reject his declaration. And I started this message describing how the Trinity was important to our faith and how it distinguishes us from other religions around us. And here's, what I want to, here's where I want to show you a difference between two modern cults that we often encounter. And there's other ones I could have shared about, but these are just two I think most of us come in contact with most often, are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. They reject and deny the Trinity, a core essential doctrine of our Christian faith. For Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity and say that Jesus is not God and that Jesus has not existed forever. They believe that Jehovah the Father alone is God. Jesus Christ is understood as the first and highest of all creation through whom other creation was made. They believe Jesus was a created being, which implies that Jesus is inferior to God and not equal to God because he was created at some point in time. And I'm reading some of my notes here because I want to do my best to accurately reflect what they believe and not misspeak, okay? For Mormons, Mormons believe Christ was the firstborn of the spirit world. Jesus' father was God the Father, Elohim. And they say that Jesus had a spiritual mother. So Jesus was the first spirit-born, and then billions of other spirit-born children came after him. This means Jesus is not equal to God, and he's not existed forever like God. Instead, Jesus became God at some point in time, and because of that, Mormons also have the hope that someday they will become God as well. And I think I felt led to talk about this today, maybe more today than a decade ago, because those groups used to be very hostile and against Christianity. They came out of an evangelical Christian root with a dynamic leader and a charismatic leader that gave them new scriptures and new doctrine. And in the past, they used to be hostile to Christians because they didn't believe what we believe. But now, as our church in America has maybe become less uh, understanding of the Bible, we know less of the Bible, we're a little more postmodern, and we kind of just go with the flow and accept everybody, we're more likely to join a Mormon group or join a Jehovah's Witness group because we don't know as much about what we believe. And those groups see cultural Christians as fertile ground to go to and get those people to join their churches. 
So what does this look like for us that work and live and have family that might be of those faiths that don't believe in the Trinity? What do we do as a church that's operating in a city that has a lot of these people that deny the Trinity? Our Trinitarian faith should lead us to say three things in a kind, loving, but direct way. Our Trinitarian faith should lead us to say, one, that we are different and we disagree. I think it's okay for us to say we are different and we disagree. And if you're a peacemaker like me and you don't like conflict, that's hard for you to say because you want to get everybody along. You want to make sure we're all friends and, and be together and be community. But when it comes to doctrine and things like this, when we talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Muslim or a Hindu, we need to be direct that, I'm sorry, we have different beliefs and we disagree. And we need to be able to look at them and say, because you don't have correct beliefs about the Trinity, about God and Jesus Christ, you are not saved. We need to be able to tell them that as well. So it's okay for us to say with our words, we are different and we disagree. But we also need to be able to say, we don't need to work together. It's okay for us not to have to work with those other groups. If the Mormons are out doing a program, we don't have to join them. If the Jehovah's Witnesses are cleaning up the lake, we don't have to join their group. And that's important for a couple of reasons. One, if I tell you here on a Sunday we're all different, and then next week I say the Mormons are doing a vacation Bible school, let's go help them, it kind of confuses the message I'm giving you, right? As well as how people in the community that are always watching the church can get confused as well. So it's okay for us to say with our actions, we don't need to work together. And lastly, a third thing our Trinitarian faith can lead us to say is that we're not going to compromise our heritage, our beliefs, or our message. We're not going to compromise our heritage, our beliefs, or our message. Like I shared earlier, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most important doctrines to the Christian faith. Scripture and the Trinity are those top two. If we begin to compromise on those two, we're going to start to drift in other important areas. We need to affirm that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons that are all God, but we worship one God. So as we wrap up our time together, I got one more stuff item. I don't know what else to call them. Object lessons. Stuff. When you get things in the mail, like this one, it often will say return service requested on the mail. Have you ever gotten mail that says return service requested? That's something the post office does where there is a message that is being delivered. There's a piece of mail that's being delivered to a specific person. And if it's accepted by that person, they open the mail, obviously, or they can reject that piece of mail and send it back and the post office will return it. And there's a reason on there why they reject it. And I share that with you, that picture of return service requested, because Jesus was that message to these people right there in front of them. And he is that message to us, an offer of eternal life to us. And there's a response required. We can reject him and say he's just a fictional guy that never lived. That's one way we can send that message back. 
We can recognize him maybe as a historical person, but he wasn't God. He didn't die for our sins, so we reject his message in that way. Or we can receive him as our God, receive him as our Savior, that was a man that lived on the earth, that died for our sins, and that through our faith in him, we get to experience eternal life. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your, your word that provides us direction on what we believe and help about how to act in a world that isn't always uh, clear. And there are gray areas and tough decisions we have to make. Pray that you would help our church family as they go about their week. Help them be a good witness, to be good friends with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists, whoever they might encounter. We pray that you would help them be friendly and loving, but also to discern that we are different. Help them describe how our faith is different and how they're not saved because they don't know you. They don't know God. They don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So as we go about this busy week, Please be with our people, protect them and guide them. Be with those that, weren't, that are sick or aren't able to be here today. Help those with those unspoken prayer requests and be with them as they go about their week. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're able, I invite you to stand and I'll read the benediction and we'll be dismissed. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all today. Amen.